Our next speaker to the Midwest Catholic Family Conference has a very ambitious life goal. Terry Beatley wants to reach one million men and women each and every year with a very special pro-life message. And that message originated from a meeting she had with and a promise she made to America's abortion king, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, author of the book, What If We've Been Wrong, and president of the Pro-Life Education Apostolate Hosea Initiative. Terry is energized and dedicated to, belief of what, to the belief that when people get the truth, the people will change the direction of this country. Using the power of storytelling, Terry celebrates the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae by uncovering the eight points of propaganda used to unleash abortion onto America, including Dr. Nathanson's Catholic strategy. So please join me in welcoming Terry Beatley. Good afternoon. And at full disclosure, if you're sitting over here, it might be difficult to see or the acoustics and the closer I'm told that you're up front, the better the acoustics will be. So, uh, so with that disclosure, we'll move forward. Um, I've learned over the years, I really like starting these talks with a prayer um, and a prayer really calling in our blessed mother's help. So if you can pray with me, In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, dear blessed mother, we ask you for your intercession and support in living our Catholic faith and being courageous witnesses for life. We pray for your protection over all of our families and may we all bear good fruit. Please intercede with the Holy Trinity on our behalf and keep the devil frustrated in all of his plans to dissuade us. Bless this convention and all the staff, attendees and their families and help us to know, Blessed Mother, the will of God concerning our lives and give us the wisdom, the perseverance, and the charity necessary for our vocations. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, what we're gonna be covering is a brief history of American culture in context when abortion was unleashed on America. And when I say unleashed on America, there was a plan to deceive the clergy, the media, medicine, teachers, uh, the list goes on and on. It was very stealthy, it was very crafty. So the second thing we'll be looking at are the, is the eight-point propaganda campaign. It's eight odious tactics Dr. Bernard Nathanson disclosed to me, and he also left it in writing. And then lastly, part of an action plan, because I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm not here just to fill your head full of facts. I am here to help mobilize the Catholic Church to crush the abortion industry. Are you with me? Now, why do I say that? I was, uh, I was baptized Catholic as a baby. Um, I made it through First Communion. My father was Episcopalian, my mother Catholic, and they must have agreed to disagree. And I only remember making it through First, Com first Confession and First Communion. And then I married a Methodist man. We've been married for 31 years, I think it, 32. Oh, you lose count after 30, isn't that true? <laughs> but anyway, we've been married a long time. And, um, and however, during this whole promise I made to Dr. Bernard Nathanson, I ended up reverting back to the Catholic Church at the altar of Our Lady of Angels in Chicago, which is not where I'm from, but it's where I was interviewing the priest who the Lord used to bring Dr. Nathanson 
into the Catholic Church. Father C. John McClowski, and I'm sure some of you here know who I'm talking about. And uh, that was where my reversion happened at the altar. And it was very, very clear. And I'm going to share this with you because I spent years being an evangelical Protestant, so I have a hard time shaking loose of my evangelical past. Okay, because I'm on fire for that Eucharist and I'm on fire for the Catholic Church. Because when the Catholic Church does what the Catholic Church is supposed to do, I'm going to tell you what, this abortion industry is decimated, defunded, destroyed, demembered. It's over when the Catholic Church awakens to what Dr. Bernard Nathanson intentionally, intentionally did to it. And that's part of what we'll be going over today. So, uh, so what happened at the, on the altar of Our Lady, I knelt beside Father C. John. I was just there for an interview. So after the interview, I'm kneeling beside him and a uh, beautiful renovated church in uh, Chicago. And I'm, I'm praying and all I can hear in an unaudible way is the Lord calling me home. And it was, Terry, you're home with a capital H. And as a Catholic woman, you're going to fulfill this promise you made to Dr. Bernard Nathanson. So that is why I'm passionately Catholic, pro-life, and we're going to get the job done. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> now, just as a survey, I'd like to know how many of you think you know the story of Dr. Bernard Nathanson and his conversion to the Catholic Church by just a show of hands. Raise them high. Now, as you can look around, the majority of people, I would say, have never heard of Dr. Bernard Nathanson. But today, he's a modern-day Saul to Paul, beautiful Catholic conversion story. And if I've got anything to do with it, with God having my back, every American is going to know who Dr. Bernard Nathanson is and his parting message and how he deceived our country. So after... It was December, it was in November actually of 2009, when I was still part of the Nazarene Church, I was at a prayer vigil. It's a 24-hour prayer vigil and you can sign up for an hour or more. I was there at 7 p.m. and I was asking the Lord what He wanted me to do with this head full of information, all the research I had done, some experiences I would had in taking the history of Margaret Sanger and the racist population control plan that she called the Negro Project. Back in 1939, she unleashed that onto America to decimate the black race. And I took it into black Protestant churches, teaching the pastor, teaching the congregation. And they encouraged me to keep going, don't stop. And I was like, this is awesome. But I didn't know what to do with all this. So at the prayer vigil, I'm begging God to give me direction. What am I supposed to do? And all I can tell you is the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and it was very clear, and it was simply this, go interview Dr. Bernard Nathanson, the doctor who trained Planned Parenthood, unleashed it on our country. And I sat in this little prayer room, I'm like, God, why would Dr. Nathanson say yes to my interview? He was the father of the abortion industry. He's the one, now, is abortion brand new? Of course not, that's been around forever, but, it has not always been a billion-dollar industry, right? Somebody turned this into a billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar industry. And Dr. Bernard Nathanson was at the helm. He's the keeper of the abortion industry keys. He was there in the late 60s, and I'll be telling you more and more about him as we go through. So, what were you doing on January 9, 1971? 
Well, I don't remember what I was doing either, but I can tell you what the board of directors, the executive committee of the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Law, what they were doing. They were having a very important meeting. It was called together by the chairman back then, Lawrence Later. Lawrence Later, he was really worried about a most serious threat to abortion advocacy. So this is before Roe v. Wade, but it, abortion had been legalized in about 20 states. So Lawrence Later, as the chairman of NARAL, and NARAL's goal was to unite a very fractured pro-abortion uh, pro movement to kind of coalesce, to unify, so they could get this job done and get abortion legalized in all 50 states and make sure it stayed illegal. So Lawrence Later's calling together this emergency meeting because of this very serious threat to abortion advocacy. And do you know what it was? It was the increasing number of live-born infants who were surviving second trimester saline abortions. Those surviving infants who were burned by the saline, but they survived, were, were an embarrassment to NARAL. And he was worried that the media had, had made much, too much about these surviving babies, because he was worried. Because he was worried that New York State and other states would, would, would reverse, that they would go back to becoming anti-abortion. But you see, in 1970, NARAL had managed to overturn a 140-year-old law on New York books that stopped abortion. They recognized the humanity of the baby, it had been on the books, but NARAL flipped it in 18 months. So they flipped it in 1970. So this is 1971, they're getting too many surviving infants. And then the other thing he was worried about was the opposition elements who would seize upon these surviving infants as a tactic in the abortion war. And I will give a free book to whoever shouts out the, the right answer real quick. Who or what was the biggest opposition element to abortion advocacy? Catholic Church, the lady here in the white shirt. <laughs> uh, Claire, you can get that book to her. <laughs> Number four row down. All right, the Catholic Church. Why did NARAL fear the Catholic Church? Well, I mean, you're the base. You already know the answers. For close to 1,900 years, the Catholic Church had been opposing abortion, as it still does today, right? I'm not saying the doctrines changed. Uh, it's, they were always recognized as an intrinsic evil, morally indefensible. The church fathers wrote against it. The Word of God explained, don't do it. And then Catholics acted pro-life. They were rescuing those babies from infanticide and, uh, and rescuing those temple prostitutes who were pregnant, giving them a home and shelter and food. So, so we wrote about it. We acted it out. We lived it. Why then? Why? Our 24% of women who are procuring abortions identifying as Catholic, 24%. Why is it? that many times the majority of Catholics literally vote for pro-choice candidates. Did it just like happen? Or were there reasons behind this? And why in January, this past January 2018, why did 87.5% of United States Catholic U.S. Senators, 87.5%, vote against the 20-week 
20-week pain-capable fetal bill, the fetal 20-week pain-capable bill, 87.5% of U.S. Catholic senators voted against it. Tell me, Catholic Church, what happened? Well, <laughs> that's what we're going to be talking about. So what happened, whether they meant to directly or indirectly, passively or, um, you know, uh, not passively, impassively, actively, we had competing worldviews, competing worldviews which, with a relentless, stealthy propaganda campaign, political dexterity, ignorance, apathy, fear, pride, because sometimes when you make bad decisions, instead of admitting bad decisions, right, your pride po pokes up, and then you're stuck behind your pride, right? And then also lack of vision, the vision for even imagining crushing the abortion industry. I see it so clearly, and of course now it's even more clear with potentially a new justice, hopefully he will be, you know, supporting overturning Roe v. Wade. But the result was 60 million dead babies, millions of people with shame, guilt, grief, and anger. Increase, by the way, Dr. Nathanson, when he ultimately resigned from NARAL two years after Roe v. Wade, in his resignation letter, he writes about, as long as abortion is legal, we will see increased violence, increased public turmoil, and the disintegration of the American family. That was 1975. Was he right? He also predicted long before anybody else predicted this, he predicted if we don't stop this, there's going to be the selling of fetal body parts. There will be a push for euthanasia. And all this mess we're seeing now, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, the father of the abortion industry, predicted all this. But he also called himself the keeper of the abortion industry keys. So when we unlock what he did, it's, I say, it's game over. Now, in order to make sense of what he did, and I learned this April 7th when I was asked to speak at the Basilica over in Dodge City, uh, and it was, I, had, I was really blessed because Bishop John Brungart appeared uh, for the Dr. Nathanson presentation. In that, um, in that group of people, there was a Lutheran minister and I didn't have an hour to talk. I only had about 20 minutes or so. So I didn't have time to get into everything I'm going to cover today. So I only explained the eight-point odious tactical plan of NARAL. And he said, I just don't understand how NARAL had so much momentum to overturn that New York anti-abortion law in 18 months. And he said, I just don't understand the momentum. And I said, well, it's a really good question because it didn't start back in 1967 when Lawrence Slater and Bernard Nathanson had a dinner party at Lawrence Slater's house. And Lawrence Slater shouted across the table, abortion needs to become legal. And Dr. Nathanson raised his glass with him and he said, absolutely. And they joined together right back then. But there was, a, there was a, something brewing long before. So just very quickly, I give seminars on almost each one of these topics. Okay, but if you can imagine these two guys getting together to mastermind NARAL and to, un and to lie to the public, we had already had 57 years of propaganda from an anarchist who was a socialist. She was a Marxist. She hated marriage, and her name was Margaret Sanger, 
the founder of Planned Parenthood, the queen of contraception. So we had already had close to 60 years of contraception. And I think I'm supposed to click my, 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 sorry about that. These are some of the folks that I'd like to introduce you to. There's Margaret Sanger on the far left. Then we had the 1930 Lambeth Conference, you know, the Anglican Church in England. I'm sure most of you in here know. That's when the Protestant denominations, the Anglican Church, began to embrace contraception. Up to that point, we had had 500 years of Protestants and the Catholic Church saying no to contraception. But in 1930, the Anglican Church broke. So we'd had all these years of that. Then we have... Um, and actually her, wow, her picture's missing. There's a, I actually had a, I don't know what happened to her, Bella Dodd. By a show of hands, who's ever read about Bella Dodd and what she did to the Catholic Church? Now y'all look around, about five people maybe raised their hand. I'm going to disclose to you something I encourage you to go back and research. It's going to make you uneasy as you sit in your chair, but I'm giving you history, real history. So by the time we had Roe v. Wade, we had had about 40 years of infiltration of communists infiltrating the Catholic Church. <gasps> but it's true. How do we know it's true? Because the lady, her name is Bella Dodd, she was the, one of the main ringleaders. She reported to the Communist Party over in Russia. And part of her job was to help place 1,100 young men who had been put into the priesthood to destroy the church from within. That was Bella Dodd. Now, how do we know this is true? Because she confessed it all to Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And he was her confessor, he was her spiritual director, and he received her into the Catholic Church in 1952. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? So she confessed it all. But you got to keep in mind, there had been 1,100 young men put into the priesthood, and they progressed to positions of influence and authority as monsignors and even bishops. I'm only repeating exactly how, what Bella Dodd told Fulton Sheen. Bella Dodd stated that right now they are in the highest places in the church where they were working to weaken the church's effectiveness against communism. Well, one of the main tactics of communism is to destroy the family. Well, if we can get American women to kill their babies, what a, what a fundamental plank in communism that would have been successful. Make sense? Because that's exactly what happened. And I'm not afraid to share the truth, because it's the truth, whether it makes you uncomfortable or not. So these changes, Bella Dodd declared, would be so drastic that you'll not recognize the Catholic Church. And a few years later, in a conversation she had with Alice von Hildebrand, Bella told her that there are numerous people who are working for the communists, and that was 12 years before Vatican II. Are you tracking with me? This is why when I think, I'm home at the Catholic Church, and I'm not sitting back to make up excuses. We have a job to get done. And that job is to destroy the industry of abortion. And we can do it, and it will be done. But before NARAL formed, we had already had 25 years of Dr. Alfred Kinsey. Show me your hands. Who knows his story? 
We give seminars at him at Jose Initiative. Dr. Nathan, uh, Dr. Alfred Kinsey, is, he was, <laughs> quite frankly, a sexual deviant, and he is the one responsible for shifting American law from Bible-based law to pseudoscience-based law. What do I mean by pseudoscience? Oh, gender liquidity. All this stuff we're dealing with now, folks, it started Technically, it started with Margaret Sanger. I mean, we could really nitpick all the way through this, but he was huge, and that was 1948 and 1952. And then, I'm fast-forwarding. I can, we can talk for about two hours on Alfred Kinsey. Okay, it's shocking. Google Table 34, Alfred Kinsey on Google Images. You will be shocked at what you see. But all of this was building the historical foundation for how we ended up in this mess of abortion. Then we had had seven years when... Roe v. Wade happened of the National Organization of Women. Okay, that was started by Kate Millett, Kate Millett and Betty Friedan. Betty Friedan is to the right of Margaret Sanger, and then there's Kate Millett with the glasses on. Both of these women were communists, and if you come to my seminar tomorrow, you're, I'm going to, I don't have time today, but tomorrow, as part of the Roe presentation, I'm going to read to you what Kate Millett and the National Organization of Women Literally, they would chant this like a Catholic uh, litany. They would chant, they would methodically go through and have the other women in the room answer how they were going to destroy America. Okay? That's the National Organization of Women. Now, just as a side joke here, when I was in college, I came home, I think it was Thanksgiving, and I, my dad was very well read on communism. I said, Dad, there's an organization I'm thinking about joining. It's called National Organization of Women. I said, what do you think? And my dad said, sit down. <laughs> I'm like, yes, sir. So I, I didn't join the National Organization of Women. <laughs> All right. So that's a very quick crash course. Um, um, before NARAL was formed. So this other guy here in the color, that's Lawrence Later. He was a communist. He worked for the first card-carrying communist on Capitol Hill. He was a Jewish atheist like Bernard Nathanson. Uh, but I'm telling you, Lawrence Later hated Christianity. And like Margaret Sanger, he most particularly hated the Catholic Church. That's what we're up against. Do you see why I'm fired up? Because if we don't get fired up, look who, win look who wins. Why? Because ideas have consequences, and we're dealing with those consequences. So, we also had, very briefly here, we had um, the Kennedy conversion. The Kennedys, y'all, you probably know a little piece of that history. I'm not going to read it. I cover it in my book from an excerpt from Patrick Madrid. And Patrick Madrid does such a beautiful job explaining the intentional that there were a few rogue priests who counseled the Kennedys back in the 60s. This is before NARAL was formed. And they intentionally, systematically, it was a very concerted effort on the part of the group of dissenting Catholic theologians, and they taught the Kennedys uh, they employed this bogus moral theology, these arguments, to convince the Kennedys that they could accept and promote abortion with a clear conscience. Isn't this shocking? So, all of a sudden, these two guys, Lawrence Slater and Bernard Nathanson, have dinner and abortion needs to become legal. Do you see how it didn't happen just like overnight? Right? There's a whole history to this. So, 
What, what NARAL did, they implemented an eight-point propaganda campaign. And it was stealthy, it was effective, it was, hot, it was very deadly, and, um, and it has never really been explained in a concise way. So that's what I'll be teaching you in just a minute. But before I get into that, I want to at least set the stage for health care. What was health care like back then? Well, putting it in context, in 1930, there were 700 maternal deaths for every 100,000 live births. So there were a lot of women dying due to maternal complications, right? But with the advancement of antibiotics, better C-sections, and all sorts of medical advancements, by 1945, that had been cut down to 300 maternal deaths for every 100,000 live births. And then, in 1960, it was all the way down to 30. So by the time we had Roe v. Wade, it was not because of better maternal health care. That was one of the lies, right? You all have heard this. I actually heard a very pro-abortion female politician recently say that in a recent political election that, well, we need this for maternal health. It's like, that's a bald-faced lie. You know, that, that's been that's proven. Okay, the other thing that I find quite interesting is what did they know about babies in the womb in 1969? You know, what did they know? Well, there's a medical journal called the Cumulative Index Medicus, and accumulates all the medical articles on any given subject having to do with, you know, anatomy. So anatomy and physiology of the fetus, there were only five articles back in 1969 on fetal anatomy. Did they know anything about the little precious babies in the womb? They didn't know anything. They didn't know any, whoop, I think my microphone, oh, there we go. And then in 1979, there were 2,800 articles. And then fast forward, in 1994, 5,000. So you can imagine now, there are probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of articles on fetal anatomy and physiology. Okay, so why should we care as Catholics? Why not just let, let it go? Whatever, it's the law of the land. I know we would probably all have a whole variety of answers, but I, for me, why can I not let it go? Not only was it the promise to Dr. Bernard Nathanson to teach his strategy of deception and to deliver his personal parting message about love, which I'll tell you that in a second, but it's also because abortion causes cancer, right? Abortion is the reason why in America, you think about America, first world country, we have a, a huge rise in, in uh, preterm deliveries. Why is that? Because a lot of these women have had abortions before and they have a weakened cervix, right? It's another reason is it's wreaking havoc, all those reasons I said, family destruction and all that. Abortion is an intrinsic evil. The other thing that I'd like to share is the, the, when we look at the, the relevancy or the reflection of, of Bernard Nathanson, sorry, right here, the, the reflections. This is what Nathanson said about what I'm about to teach you, that eight-point strategy. This is what he said. He said, this is the father of America's abortion industry, that I believe if every American Catholic could learn his story, this beautiful story of a Catholic conversion on the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, 1996, I believe Will we get every Catholic to change his or her mind? 
Probably not. But will we get a huge swath of Catholics who have just been mixed up on this to change their mind? Absolutely. Because if the father of the abortion industry can look at a pro-choice Catholic woman or man and deliver this message, it's going to cause that person, hopefully, to reevaluate the sand that they're standing on. This is what Nathanson said. This is what he left behind. He said, I believe the abortion ethic is fatally and forever flawed by the immorality of the means of its victory. A political victory achieved by such odious tactics is at best an unstable tyranny spawned by an unscrupulous and unprincipled minority. At the least, disclosure of these odious tactics should compel those of us who are uneasy with abortion to re-examine the issue. And then Dr. Nathanson said, I believe that an America which allows a junta of moral thugs to foist an evil of incalculable dimensions upon our country and just permit that evil to flower leaves behind a deadly legacy, a millennium of shame. Isn't that profound? That's the father. So if he can say that, if he can be the doctor who was personally responsible for the death of 75,000 babies, he trained doctors on 5,000, he, uh, no, he personally aborted 5,000, he trained on 10,000 more patients and then uh, teaching doctors, and then he ran a facility with the death of 60,000 more, more babies. If he can change, become pro-life, and then become Catholic, why can we not go crush the abortion industry, right? All right, so this is what he did. This is the eight-point strategy, because at the end of that interview, he said, teach America how, how we did this. So the first thing he did, and we have tools, okay? I've, I've written a book. We've got plus a little fact checkbook. We've got it all on the table right back there. I'm, I'm right behind the curtain here. This is what he did. He fr they first, and back in the late 60s, early 70s, they framed the debate around choice. It's just a woman's right to choose. They didn't say, we believe abortion, you know, killing babies ought to be legal. That wouldn't have gotten them anywhere, right? They had to, they had to, they had to couch it in something. It was couched in choice. Then they crafted the slogans. Oh, it's my body, my choice, and all those kind of slogans that we're so used to. Thirdly, he used the complicit media. Okay, if I was Dr. Nathanson and you are the reporters, most of you, first off, were going to be young females. You had graduated probably from a secular university, and you were so tired of opposing the Vietnam War this felt really good to be able to support something, okay? So now you're supporting legalizing abortion. So you were like wet Play-Doh in Dr. Nathanson's hands. He could tell you anything, and you wouldn't go research it. You would go report it as a fact. <gasps> there was fake news back then. <laughs> All right, so what were those false facts and that fa false polling? The false facts, he would tell the media this, look, we have an epidemic on our hands. One million women a year are having back alley abortions. These are dangerous abortions. And 5,000 to 10,000 women a year are dying of illegal abortions, you know, coat hanger abortions, knitting needle abortions. 5,000 to 10,000 women a year are dying. 
Don't you think, like intuitively, if there were that many women dying, we would have found, a, I don't mean to sound crass, but we would have found dead people everywhere, 10,000 all over America. Well, the reason we did not find that is because there were not 10,000 women dying. It was a bald-faced lie. The real number on the high side was about 200. That's 200 too many. And that's 200 women who chose an illegal activity, and it resulted in their death. If they had obeyed the law, they would not have died. The other fake thing he would tell the media is he would say 60% of Americans want abortion on demand legalized. 60%. So when I sat with Dr. Nathanson, I said, Dr. Nathanson, where did you get the 60% number? And he said, Terry, I just pulled it out of thin air. He said, the public relations company we had hired for $7,500 told us, if we want a revolution, you better be more than 50% on your stats. Do you know what the real number was? I'll give a free, here you go, a freebie. <laughs> All right, unless you've already been to one of my seminars. Okay, let's choose somebody new, okay? All right, what was the percentage based on Dr. Nathanson? What, he, what was the real percentage of Americans who wanted abortion on demand legalized back in 1969, 1970? What percent? I heard a 5%. One. That lady in the green, come on up here. You're the next contestant on Get the Facts Straight. <laughs> All right, you get a free booklet, okay? Come see me afterwards. Um, it was one half of 1%. One half of 1% wanted abortion on demand legalized, and Dr. Nathanson had the backbone to say 60%. And he knew you, you reporters, you were gonna go report what he said. Next thing, he would repeat the lies, often and much. He repeated, repeated. He manipulated the media, as I've just said. Now, going back to the repeat. In the media, if you repeat the lies long enough, it becomes the, okay. And then he would justify it. He would say, look, these million women a year who are having illegal abortions, they're going to go do it anyway. Let's just get the law you know, rat ratified so these people aren't breaking the law because they're going to do it anyway. Might as well be you know, safe, legal, and rare, right? Safe, legal, and rare. Well, it became the self-fulfilling lie because the real number was about 99 to 100,000 illegal abortions a year, not one million. But as soon as it became legal, what happened? Shoo! Went up to over a million abortions a year, the self-fulfilling lie. Okay? Then, and lastly, is the Catholic strategy. And because I'm a terrible self-timer, I forgot to cut my timer on. What, how many more minutes do I have? How, how, how much longer do we have? Okay, here we go. Okay, so the NARAL Catholic strategy. NARAL had a problem on their hands. They're based up in New York City. And the first thing they set out to do after they formed was to overturn this 140-year-old law. How are they going to do it? Because they got a problem on their hands. They need a political victory. They need enough people who are going to support it in the voting booth. They need enough politicians. How are they going to do it when New York has a lot of Catholics? Hmm. There's a problem on their hands, and it's called deception. They're going to need to deceive and manipulate Catholics and Catholic voters. Two, there weren't, they were not setting out to convince you that you're supposed to just wrap your arms around abortion, but they did not want you to be that opposition element, so they needed to neutralize you. 
and this is the way they did it. Every time a woman died of an illegal abortion in New York, or really anywhere in the world, it was the Catholic Pope, the Cardinals, the Bishop fault, the local priest fault. You know, because that old stodgy Catholic church, they don't know and under, under, understand women and all this. So blame, blame, blame. The next thing they would do is they would emphasize any Catholic politician or candidate who was willing to soften his or her position on the abortion issue. If they were like, well, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll begin voting more pro-choice, you know, I don't feel right about this, but you know, hey, it's the right thing to do. They would promote that person in the media like you wouldn't believe. Okay? The next thing they, now what I'm telling you is what Dr. Nathanson told me and he wrote about, okay? So the third thing is they would support door knocking, pamphleteering, making little circular things, work in the media, and so they would support that candidate during his or her political election. And then fourth, they needed what was called the straddle. Let's see, and the straddle, sorry, I meant to click that. The straddle, you all already know it, we actually saw Tim Kaine executed at the vice presidential debate in Farmville. I was there. It was a huge room. I was sitting about halfway back, and I thought I was going to climb over the chairs, walk up on stage and say, he's executing the straddle. Wake up America, because this is what happened. <clears throat> the straddle, you already know it. You already know, because it's been around forever. You just don't realize, most people don't realize, it was literally a NARAL tactical plan to dupe American Catholic voters. And it was simply this. Oh, well, they needed to convince Catholics that they could be personally against abortion, but every woman deserves the right to choose, right? That was, that was not around prior to NARAL. So it was the straddle, to be on both sides of the fence. They already had so many Catholics in their back pocket because, and keep in mind, this is the 50th year of Humana Vitae, they already had all these contracepting Catholics. So let me explain the connection and why Dr. Nathanson wrote about this extensively. They already had a lot of Catholics, but now they needed enough of the strong pro-lifers to begin supporting the abortion movement. So now it's 1972. They were having the National Symposium on Legislative Breakthroughs. This was a big NARAL event. They accused President Nixon of injecting himself into the abortion war because Nixon spoke against abortion. He accused the Catholic hierarchy of turning it into a religious war. They accused a fanatical minority, that's us, of one religious faith suddenly determined to impose its dogma on the majority. They, they accused the Catholic Church of flouting its tax-exempt status to promote you know, all this pro-life activity. They, they accused the Catholic Church of intimidating legislators they accused the Catholic Church of attempting to repeal the Bill of Rights and that we must keep Cardinal Cook out of our bedrooms. He was a very staunch pro-life cardinal. And in this symposium, it firmed up NARAL's liberal credentials by taking gratuitous swipes at, um, or two at Nixon, who had offended the abortion advocates expressing his personal abhorrence of abortion. He accused, they accused the Catholic Church endlessly screaming murderer, even at clergymen and legislators. So it was relentless. This was a written 
they said it, but they, then it was documented. Dr. Nathanson said, if you really study this document, what they said, and if you change the word Catholic to Jewish or to black, it would be the most anti-Semitic or racist public statement of all time. But it wasn't. It was about the Catholic Church. So I'm sharing this with you because our faith is what's going to, I mean, Our Lady, to get this job done. But we have to fight, and we've got to be willing to stand up for truth. And Dr. Nathanson, I mean, he, he really spelled it out. I mean, he connected all the way back to John F. Kennedy. You know, he, he said that uh, John F. Kennedy, he portrayed himself as a cool Catholic. Some of you may be able to really relate to this. He said that John F. Kennedy, he presented himself as a cool Catholic, unencumbered by the fetters of Catholicism, by emphasizing the distance between his religious duties as a Catholic and then his civil duties as president. So Nehru really capitalized on this cool Catholic, because what they ended up doing is identifying in their mind, Nehru, two different groups of Catholics, the cool Catholics, the real liberal ones, and then they discovered there's the conservative line of Catholics, and then Nehru intentionally pitted the two together, okay? So, Dr. Nathanson, these are his own words, but Kennedy-style Catholicism made that sort of mindless, all-encompassing all bias unfashionable, with increasing number of young Catholics entering colleges, joining professions, enlisting in the ranks of liberal causes such as feminism, civil rights, and the Vietnam War resistance, Nehru perceived that now we had two classes, the educated, fashionable Kennedy style, and then those who were still blue-collar, only one generation removed from immigration and uncritically subject to the dictates of the church. Nehru's strategy was to use the modern Catholics to persuade the others to our cause. The modern Kennedy Catholics needed little persuasion. Like I said, they were already in the back pocket. And lastly, his statement was this. To, to, after they applied the straddle, to maintain their appearance as enlightened and progressive while still remaining their bona fides as Catholics, Nehru provided them with the now Catholic straddle for Catholics in public positions that abortion's personally abhorrent, but everyone must be free to make their choice. And now Nehru was ready to use them to call over the more traditional, less trendy Catholics to our cause. And he ends it with, the stage was set for the portrayal of the Catholic Church as political force, for the use of anti-Catholicism as a political instrument, and for the manipulation of Catholics themselves by splitting them and setting them against each other. And let it be said that the church helped us in Nehru, which may sound confusing, but they looked at it as a bonanza that Humana Vitae came out because the Catholics who were contracepting, they couldn't split off abortion. It's either like all or nothing. So if they wanted to keep contracepting, they had to also embrace abortion. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Okay. Nehru capitalized on it. Okay. But here's our faith 50 years later. And doesn't blessed Pope Paul VI look like a hero? You know, doesn't he look like a hero? You know, and I hope he hears what's being said. 
Thank you, blessed Pope Paul. Thank you. As a woman who bought those lies for, good Lord, like 23 years, popping a little white pill, having no idea what that pill was doing to me and to future children, I had no idea. I thank blessed Pope Paul. You know, when young millennial women today find out that abortion causes breast cancer, and by the way, the birth control pill is a group one carcinogen, recognized by the World Health Organization as a carcinogen. It's in the same family as asbestos. It's game over. So the last thing is Nathanson. Okay, so in 1975, Nathanson resigned from NARAL. 1984, he made silent scream. 1996, he was received into the Catholic Church. And then in 2009, when I met him, I said, Dr. Nathanson, do you have a message for America? And that's when he said, yes. He said, continue teaching the strategy of how I deceived America. And then tell America that the co-founder of NARAL says to love one another. Abortion's not love. Stop the killing. The world needs more love, and I'm all about love now. Isn't that beautiful? That's why I want every American, but especially every American Catholic, to know about Bernard Nathanson. So as I began this journey of fulfilling the promise, I had no clue how I was going to teach America the strategy of his deception, but God did. God had a whole plan. And, uh, and I'm encouraging you to get my book, and I'll tell you why. I want 60 million books sold. That's one book for every baby. If that happens, and there are plenty of books that have sold millions, and millions like Da Vinci Code, which bashes the Catholic Church. Da Vinci Code sold like 70 million copies. Well, if Da Vinci Code, which bashes the Catholic Church, can do that, why can I not get 60 million books sold? Do you know what that means? If we can teach America the truth of what Bernard Nathanson left behind in an easy reading book, it'll raise over $540 million to give away to crisis pregnancy centers, to help fund adoption, to help educate America to rebuild or to build a culture of life. $540 million. I want one book sold for every baby. Now, I only learned about 30 books back there, so I don't have 60 million here. But now, what else is in that book? Well, after I nearly, I'd almost finished writing it, and I asked the Lord to give me a closing story that could, could wind this book down. And I also needed an attorney who could write a summary of what went wrong with Roe v. Wade which is my talk tomorrow. I was on my way to the 2015 March for Life and God answered my prayers in eight hours. I also needed a donation to Jose Initiative. And what happened in the next eight hours is I arrived at my old office and there was an envelope, opened it up and there was a $25,000 check. Isn't that amazing? That's God, right? That's God encouraging me to keep going. Then I get to Americans United for Life Law Conference. I get tired of sitting. I go to the back of the room. I get a spiritual nudge when the thing is over to go introduce myself to a man five people down. Not this guy, but that guy. I'm like, okay, God, I'll go introduce myself to that guy and not this guy. Well, his name was Sam Casey, and Sam and I get talking, and he said, Terry, I knew Dr. Nathanson. And, and he said, what do you need? And I said, well, I need an attorney who will write a summary of what went wrong with Roe, an easy reading summary. 
Because if I can get somebody to read my book, they've not only learned about the domestic and international threat to parental rights due to the aggressive abortion industry, the relevancy of Dr. Bernard Nathanson's story of everything I just shared, plus manipulating the, the Catholics, they're also going to learn the true story about Norma McCorvey, who's Roe. So Sam Casey says, Terry, I'll write that for you. And he, then he says, in fact, I'll get Alan Parker to co-write it with me. I'm like, that's awesome. God answered prayer number two. But I said, well, who's Alan Parker? And Sam said, Terry, Alan Parker, come on. Alan Parker represented Norma McCorvey in 2003 when she tried to overturn Roe v. Wade. So I had a $25,000 check in one pocket and Norma McCorvey's attorney in the other one. I'm like, woo. <laughs> so I'm like doing my David dance. And then I get a, a text message from a friend who's at the bottom level of the Renaissance Hotel. She said, Terry, come down here. My Catholic friends who are part of Silent No More, so these are Catholic women who had had abortions, they want to hear about your interview with Dr. Nathanson. Now, I'm not going to spoil it, but God delivered an answer so that third, the third one, yeah, remember what it was? I needed a closing story. I end up meeting a woman who, in 1972, she's Catholic, she got pregnant by her boyfriend in New Jersey, and he took her into New York City for an abortion. And guess where he took her? To Dr. Bernard Nathanson's abortuary, where they were killing 900 babies per week. Per week. 900 babies per week. And she said, Terry destroyed me for the next 20 years. And she said, you know, he died, right, a couple years ago? And I said, yeah, he died February 2011, in 2011. She said, well, Terry, I went to his funeral. I'm like, oh, God. I'm like, Jesus, you might as well show up and just sit right beside me, okay? Because God was downloading one of the closing stories in the book. And this lady began to, and I said, why did you go to Dr. Bernard Nathanson's funeral? And she said, Terry, I knew his backstory of becoming pro-life and then becoming Catholic. And I really felt like if I went to his funeral, it would help me in my personal healing. And she begins describing that funeral. And then at the end, I said, well, can I use your story for my book? And she said, yeah. And then she said, just don't use my last name. And then I said, well, what's your first name? And she said, well, my name is Mary. All right, and then my book is dedicated to Mary, mother of the savior of the world, because I wanted to also attract Protestants, you know, you know how that goes. So it's mother, Mary, mother, savior of the world. But I think our blessed mother has her hands all over it because our country is right at the edge. We can't take any more yuck, right? We can't. But I believe this. See, I see that man clapping. That's right. Clap loud. We cannot take any more yuck. <laughs> all right. The setting for this book is after I made the promise, I stopped homeschooling, not because of the promise, just for other family matters. We moved two, and a half, two hours away to Fredericksburg, and the setting for the book is the defeat of the most pro-abortion, anti-parental right Virginia state senator. He had been in that legislature for, legislature for 28 years, seven terms. And I thought, this is crazy. People keep voting this man in, but he... He, he votes against parental rights. He's destroying parental rights. So I set out with a nine-month plan to educate the community. And let me tell you what Christian looks like in action. This is not to pat myself on the shoulder at all. And I do mean that sincerely. I, I will use it, though, as an example. 28 years, seven terms, 
I even went into minority markets and educated people, and they thanked me profusely. Black people learning about Margaret Sanger's Negro Project, joining my team, distributing 3,500 information kits about this rotten senator who had sold out to the abortion industry. Well, let me tell you something, fellow Catholics, when we get off the couch and love people with the truth, you know what happens? Rotten senators get defeated. And he was defeated, hands down. Now, the other reason I am so passionate about awakening the Catholic Church is, you know, we're not supposed to be contracepting, and we many times end up with beautiful, large families. And those moms and dads love those babies. But if we, as Catholics, do not wake up, there is a domestic and international threat to parental rights. And let me explain very quickly that when the ink dries on an international treaty, like the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child Treaty, parental rights in America are toast. I traveled all over the state of Virginia. I'd go to NAACP meetings, Democrat Party meetings, Republican meetings, church meetings, anybody who would take me. Okay, and the way it works is this. What does it take to get a treaty ratified in America? Uh, it's it's two-thirds of the United States Senate and the President's signature. It has nothing to do with the House of Representatives. Nothing. They don't vote on treaties. Well, there are treaties in existence, okay, such as one, Bill Clinton supported it. He encouraged Madeleine Albright to sign off on it, but he didn't have the votes in the United States Senate. But if he had, they would have ratified it. And they would have passed the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child Treaty, and your parental rights would be gone. Because under the Constitution, under Article 6, go read it, go look it up today. Article 6 of the United States Constitution, it says that, inter that treaties supersede, they become our law if we ratify a treaty. And I write about this in the book, okay? So if Catholics who have all these children do not awaken, and if they're not willing to get off the bench and go share the information with somebody else, we're going to lose eventually. Because if we lose it in the Senate, and if we end up with a president who's willing to sign an international treaty, which will eviscerate parental rights, kiss your children goodbye, because you will not even be able to make them get out of bed in the morning to go to church on Sunday morning. Your kids will have the authority to call a government agency of a bunch of unelected officials and they can report that my mom and dad are trying to make me go to church and I don't want to go to church because it's my right to stay home and they're not going to force their faith upon me. That's called the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child Treaty. So this last election, and I will speak politics because if we do not... I was at a Catholic con uh, conference with a very famous theologian. And I'm not saying that, I'm not even going to name who it is because it doesn't matter. But what was said was it doesn't matter who you vote for and political parties and all, as long as Catholics will just be Catholics and we live our Catholic faith. That, my friends, is 100% wrong. And this is why. Hear me very clearly. 
We can live our Catholic faith. We can have our beautiful families. But the ones who make the law rule the culture. And God gives us government. So if we're not aware of how we can lose our rights and lose our parental rights because, you know, we don't get involved with politics, it's over. And we were so close because there are plenty of globalists who are now part of the American government. I already, already exposed to you communism and the infiltration, okay? If we do not awaken to this real and imminent threat, right now we're okay, but it is a real and present danger, parental rights are gone. Are you with me? So, yeah, thank you. So, our, my, I, w I would like for you, and I'm limited on the books, we have curriculum, ah, we have, and lastly, I will not be long, we have the book, and I don't have enough books, so just go to our website, and there are plenty of places to click. Get the book, okay? We've got an e-book, we're coming out um, probably in a week on an audio book, hard copy, soft copy. There is a man here in a bright green yellow shirt who has bought cases of books from me. And you know what he did? Dave O'Reilly, thank you. Let me tell you what Dave did. Mr. Kansas man, here we go. Dave made a label and it said, Get, read this book and go share it with others. Don't let it sit on a bookshelf. Because in this one book, it teaches you everything you need to know in an easy to read way. And then we have curriculum, okay? Curriculum, which is all, it's high school Catholic curriculum, homeschool, high school. And um, it's, I don't have time to explain it, but we just got the, ah, thank you. We just got the Nihil Opstadt. I always pronounce that wrong. The Nihil Opstadt, okay? Stamp of approval. Doesn't violate Catholic, we got it on the book and the, and the Catholic uh, curriculum. To, because what we're finding is that even Catholic kids who graduate from good Catholic schools. It's hard though, you may be pro-life, but it's hard to actually go out there and act on it. So what we do is we draw them in to the story of Dr. Bernard Nathanson, because he is the modern day Saul to Paul story. All right, so I'm done. I encourage you to visit me at my booth and send me around the country. Let's get this job done. Thank you.